Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Reverb. I am joined on the mic here by my colleagues, Calvin Pollock. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Very good, Calvin. And our co-host, Mike Lautenbach. Hi, everybody. We are excited, very excited today, uh, to be joined by Dr. Paul Elliott Johnson, an assistant professor of communication at the University of Pittsburgh. Paul's research centers on rhetorical theory, argumentation, and American politics, with a particular focus on the rhetoric of populism and American conservatism. His book, I, the People, the Rhetoric of Conservative Populism in the United States, was released January 25th from the University of Alabama Press. Paul, thanks so much for joining us on Reverb. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to, to chatting a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, so we wanted to uh, talk, as I kind of alluded to in our introduction here, primarily about your new book, I, the People. Uh, so I thought we could get started here just by asking a little bit about the significance of the title of your book, I, the People. Where did this title idea come from and what to you does it signal about the nature of right wing populism in America? Yeah, I mean, so the the title really was derived out of my admiration, actually, for the the work of Vanessa Beasley, a uh, rhetorical uh, critic um, at the University of Vanderbilt, whose book "You the People" was a study of presidential rhetoric, um, and obviously, right, patterned on the you know the famous formulation "We the People" that's you know such an important uh, civic cornerstone in the United States, um, you know, and and I I was in, interested in in thinking about my project. One thing that I had had been wrestling with, you know, throughout its generation was, you know, to what extent, if we talk about neoliberalism as a you know political and social regime characterized by the increasing individualization of of the world, how people think about themselves, the inability of society to accumulate to anything more than, you know, singular atoms, uh, you know. If that's one of the central uh, problems and and you might say, right, kind of rhetorical advantages of the right is that they figured out ways to talk through that problem to their to their uh, success, you know, then then maybe the next step from a kind of, you know, 20th, early 21st century public address model of thinking about the presidency and civics in which we imagine a kind of consubstantial relationship between leaders and populations uh, if, if that's becoming imagined more and more as this kind of, uh, you might say, kind of degradation or collapse into like a, a very baldly individualistic model of, of thinking about sociality and togetherness. So really, that's, you know, part of the inspiration was very simply that I'm a great admirer of Vanessa's work. And it also seemed as though this is a, you know, a kind of a natural next next step in the degradation of our democracy. Um, or, you know, when I say degradation, I mean increased capacity that we have to perceive the perceive things as being uh, rotten. But because to some extent, this degradation has always been present from the standpoint of us not being a very high functioning democracy, only maybe kind of maybe being a democracy since the middle ish of the 20th century. Um, and, and even that period of time being overrepresented or, or uh, overthought uh, through nostalgia as a kind of golden era when in fact it was, I mean. You know, the Cold War was not uh, a time when democracy thrived per se, uh, but rather you know something quite more exclusive. So, so that was a big, a big part of it, and and I was also drawn to the, just the idea of, of the I, the single figure, the individual, in part because of this the individual figure who suffers from trauma has has been in my estimation central to these you know conservative vocabularies uh, for quite a long time, 
And so thinking about how it is that so many different complicated problems that are social problems and collective problems that ought to be dealt with as such end up being thought through individualist terms, right? As if they are simple problems that are just matters for individuals to kind of like deal with or, you know, uh, die or suffer or suffer or struggle under. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, so there's there's a lot in there, obviously, to unpack. But I think that one of the things specifically touching on one of the other aspects of that individualism, as you talked about, uh, this is also, you know, imbricating these feelings of like trauma and victimhood uh, that are felt by, uh, you know, that are felt, you know, everywhere in the U.S., but uh, but particularly of the strands that you're tracking or tracing through uh, right wing political culture. Um, I wanted to go to, I think, one of the core concepts from your arguments, and I think this plays a little bit into that that concept of the feeling of victimhood uh, that that uh, that kind of curiously appears uh, on the right wing here. Uh, and it's when you point out that, you know, your conception of uh, U.S. liberal subjectivity, and that's small l liberal subjectivity uh, in the United States, is its reliance on and reaction to uh, what you're talking about as a pathological theory of blackness, right? Uh, this is, you know, as you were talking about the, uh, the quote unquote degradation of U.S. democracy, uh, the fact that it has it is always kind of uh, marked by its history as a settler colonial state. Uh, and that, you know, has obviously carried forth uh, with it, you know, this kind of generational trauma. Um, so could you tell us a little bit why this uh, pathological theory of blackness, uh, equating blackness to death, what does this mean? And why is it so critical to understanding the rhetoric of right wing populism in the context of a settler colonial state like the U.S.? Yeah, I think um I, I I turned to blackness as a term for two reasons. One, you know, I'd written a dissertation about this problem, but it paid insufficient attention to race. And and so I said to myself, well, you know, I, I simply need to gather more information, sit with other scholarship, think with other people a lot more capaciously than I did at the dissertation phase of the project. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously at, at you know, the time I was writing the dissertation from 2009, 2013, you know, the sort of overwrought reactions to Obama suggested that there was something in the air um, with respect to the post-racial and fears and racial anxieties. But uh, I simply didn't really have the scholarly capacity or training at that point really to think through those things in a responsible way. So, you know, after defending the dissertation, I then sort of engaged on a several year long reading project, which I was, you know, fortunate to have time afforded to because I was, you know, before I started on this, the, the tenure track in my position, I was just kind of lecturing and coaching debate for a while. And so I just had time to read. And I was able to, you know, really sit with this work. And, you know, in particular, the, the book is extraordinarily indebted to, you know, the work of Sadia Hartman, right, who sort of you know, gives us these ideas of fungibility and, and blackness as pathology uh, and that influence a lot of work that follows, um, you know, from others uh, in the field, particularly too, right? Ursula Orr's recent work on lynching um, as a kind of civic technology, right? You know, uh, for, for, you know, Ursula's book sort of says, look, we've tended to oppose rhetoric and violence to one another. What if, in fact, you know, rhetoric is not civics and violence is anti-civics, but what if violence and civics are the same thing <laughs> in the United States and in a settler, settler colonial context, uh, you know, living in the after, afterlife or aftermath of slavery. So, you know, those two things together, you know, pushed me to say, okay, we need to talk about, you know, to an even greater extent, 
how the modern American right, it's correct to say, as many have, that it, it positions itself as a reaction to the civil rights movement and as a reaction to the Cold War decision to mainstream racial liberalism as part of a maneuver to establish the United States as a quote unquote humane regime in contrast with the Soviet Union and all its, you know, various, various both real totalitarian horrors, but also those that are socially constructed, right, as signs of what real Marxism does, uh, you know, within the 1940s, 50s and, and 60s and say, OK, we, ha we, we must continue to insist that this is to a great degree about race, but also we need a vocabulary that does not reduce this simply to saying that it is about Right, black people, right? Um, and not because that's not an important part of the story, but because within you know folks who are working in cultural studies, black studies, post-colonial studies, um, you know, critical race, race theory, critical legal studies, black feminism, and all these other cognate uh, disciplines or subdisciplines, you know, they have already kind of rejected this reduction of blackness to black people as a theory, right? And they actually want to say, well, there's this thing called the black experience. Uh, you know, that Baldwin, you know, Baldwin writes about that Fannie Lou Hamer speaks about. And that is not the access point for my book as a white guy. <laughs> you know, the access point for my book as a white guy is this hit this political and social history of how America thinks about the things that it cannot understand or comprehend and which it, as a consequence and as a result, it attempts to control, to manipulate and to objectify. Right. Which positions it as part of this larger history of liberal modernity, right? A, a project premised on the reduction of humanity into, right? Nothing more or less than uh, something like value, right? Whether we think about that as economic value or we think about that as people turned into objects so that other people can feel human, i.e. become subjects. So I was very, very, you know, persuaded and moved by the work of Hartman and others working in that vein to the extent that they say, you know, uh, and also, you know, uh, Michelle Wright, uh, the, the, um, the physics of blackness, uh, Fred Moten's, Moten's kind of work oriented towards thinking about poetry and registers of, of blackness and life, you know, that converge in this argument uh, to some extent that says, you know, of course, there's no single name for what black is, but that's not a problem for, right, critics and opponents <clears throat> and, uh, skeptics of modern capitalism and U.S. empire. That's a problem for U.S. empire, which has right premised and built itself on this opposition to blackness uh, and and is repeatedly confronted with the fact that while it set itself up in opposition to, you know, uh, black life, uh, black personhood, um, it can't define right with any regularity what that content is other than just to produce more violence and to produce more death. So, so it's, it's a, a kind of way to formulate the broad thesis about, you know, necropolitics, which, you know, Hilly and Bembe and other people bring into the conversation and say, let's start with what the global rhetorical situation in a certain sense of the United States is right. Which is that it's premised on freedom as a vital force of life, but it's also traumatically tied to, uh, having to define this only in relationship to death, uh, and 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 how that then is is spanning and underwriting, um, I, I guess you might say all these debts right, the U.S. empire has racked up and that are kind of continuously coming due every day. 
Absolutely. I I thought that was, I mean, to me, that was probably one of the strongest aspects of, of you know, at, at least the introductory framing of your book was uh, going into not only your own positionality as a scholar, like, you know, as a white man talking about uh, blackness as a concept, but using that as a kind of way to instantiate what U.S. civic political culture has, has always kind of been in reaction to. You have this really wonderful quote that I wanted to read out here because I think it kind of pinpoints it exactly. U.S. identity is built on an abiding negativity stemming from its national foundations on settler colonialism and chattel slavery, and so its ideological legitimation runs on a libidinal economy that takes pleasure in witnessing and even in making others suffer. By virtue of organizing itself as the negation of blackness and disavowing understandings of blackness that are not about pathology and death, U.S. civil society is trapped in a death spiral of violating, incarcerating, and otherwise denigrating blackness to prove that whiteness stands for something, anything, besides violence and dispossession. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of uh, thought that that was, you know, kind of a really useful way to understand this, you know, what some have, you know, described conservatism as at least contemporary conservatism as kind of like a death cult, right? Uh, this is a sort of less glib way to uh, really add some of that historical context in that I thought was really useful. Paul, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear more on how that frame of understanding blackness as this sort of negative image of the sort of uh, American self you know, as constituted in, you know, hegemonic institutions, how that constrains or perhaps animates conservative populism specifically, because I, I feel like there's this really sort of elaborate way in which it frames the entirety of the American political, political system and the entirety of uh, our sort of hegemonic discourses from all the way from liberal to conservative. But like, how does that specifically animate conservatism in, in your framework? Yeah, I think so. And I love that question, too, because it highlights that this is a broader problem, right? Like if you want to say that there's this trajectory of possessive individualism, we struggle to identify the self as anything other than just, you know, owning other people or thinking about other people as property. That's a broad problem. And then within that context, what conservative conservatism does is, I, I suppose you can say that it migrates that understanding of personhood and and laminates it onto the, the rhetorical figure of the people, right, as a, as a concept. So that if the people has this rhetorical potential to signal a kind of collectivity um, through which people might be pulled or through which people might come to understand themselves, in ways that they might be otherwise than they have been before, right? And I mean, this could, you could go kind of old school and talk about this as invention, right? Or you could kind of move into a more, you know, kind of critical theory turn and talk about this as, you know, the people is the the excess, right? That can't be domesticated or controlled in some sense. The, the people is this, is a name for the fact that what life could be isn't reducible to or definable to what it has been or what it is. Um, and I think conservatism wants to to mark uh, those other potential ways of being the people or what the people might be as threats to mm. individual right sovereignty or individual personhood. So that, you know, the welfare state is not the condition of the possibility of generating something like a different form of collective life that would be hostile or unintelligible to robber barons, but instead is you know, the production of an alternate mode of sovereignty that will, right, threaten 
the individual, right? And, you know, threaten to like immiserate them or, you know, quite literally enslave them. You know, conservatives are, are very, uh, they, they're very fast and loose, right? When they talk about the threat of, of, of putting people in chains. So that I think it's that, it's that migration of a person-to-person understanding of what freedom is into this broader context, right? And, and in some ways you could say, well, it's not, it's not clear even that the migration is new since that's not you know, an unfamiliar way of thinking about the people in relationship to the American Revolution. But what you might say is that it feels new and novel when we've been sort of trained through nostalgia, historical accumulation and myth to think about the 1937 to 1973 period as this like great moment of welfare state world making. Um, and and this, this matriculation of the traumatized eye into the position of being the enemy of the state and the population that has been corrupted or to some extent, um, you know, wounded by the state, right? Pathologized by the state. That's what's quote unquote new, you know, is saying then that it's this new new version of the people that was invented by the sort of like liberal establishment managerial regime in the middle of the 20th century that is now putting the individual in peril. Uh, so that the welfare state's rather anodyne regulatory capacities <laughs> in the context of Western democracies appear as a threat to individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact, the whole theory of the New Deal and its various extensions is that there is a kind of reconcilability that could be achieved between those regulatory capacities and right the spirit of who the people are or what they might be. Um, even if it's only going to be temporary, right, we understand that people are an asymptote and they can't be you know purely apprehended or made real. A, a functional democracy would repeatedly you know find a marriage between that vision of governance and that vision of the people and kind of hit it over and over. You know the way that FDR does sometimes, that Bernie Sanders attempts to do sometimes, and conservatism says. We are going to use this idea of the individual as always threatened to just like break those links, you know, to make it really hard to to imagine those two things as being uh, conjoined, right, or convergent. Right. No. Yeah. I think so. Uh, we didn't really have any time, or we didn't take any time at the very beginning of our conversation to kind of just basically praise you for this book. But I mean, I found this book incredibly useful and. Uh, incredibly generative for like thinking about um, subjectivity and this sort of notion of the people as something that's contested in American politics and that that contestation is something that really animates a lot of the most intense debates in our politics. Um, and so I, you got to this a little bit in, in what you were just speaking about but before we talk about some of the specific case studies in the book, uh, I'd, I'd just love to hear you lay out a little bit more how you understand populism as a concept and how that differs from sort of past accounts that you've found useful as well. Because for me, um, populism has always been a very fuzzy term. It seems to be a term that, for example, a lot of people on the left want to really fiercely defend. I think about like Thomas Frank writes a lot about populism um, and, and that, you know, there are a number of leftists, Bernie Sanders included, who believe that liberals have kind of left populism behind in a way that's been negative, uh, that, that this is something that should be reclaimed by the left. But how, how do you understand populism at a theoretical level and what, 
what distinguishes conservative populism within your theoretical framework from more left-wing variants of populism? Yeah. So, and it's a, it's a complicated conversation, right? Because you have the academic tracks of like, here are how people define populism for the purposes of conducting study versus what is populism as it's being defined by these, you know, movements or forces in American, you know, political life. And I think the academic side of it is is somewhat straightforward. And then I think you have a, you have a school of people who define populism as an ideology, right? And they want to be able to say, whether you're looking at what's happening in Argentina or Chile or the United States or you know uh, France, there is this thing called populism. It is characterized by big government. It is characterized by the government paying paying people money and supporting big projects and stuff. And it is relatively inflexible in the way that it wants to deal with competing regimes. Um, and for a host of reasons, you know that model was kind of already well into crisis, you know, by the early 20th century, where people are sort of turning to these more, uh, by alteration, right, stylistic and or, um, uh, you know, rhetorical approaches to thinking about populism, precisely because, you know, people were unhappy with the idea that you sort of had to like, I don't know, like, lump, lump Hitler in with, you know, like, left wing Democrats, um, you know, for like, reasons that were problematic even before people on the right, like Jonah Goldberg, were trying to sort of like make these equations um, you know, for political for their political ends, as he does in, in this liberal fascism book. So, I mean, you move past the ideology view and you say, OK, can we build a really systematic account of what populism is? And you have to sort of permute, I think, or make a marriage between a couple different available perspectives. Right. One of which is the school of like populism as style. So, you know, Michael Lee. Who, I mean, who wrote an excellent book on conservatism, uh, creating conservatism. But before that, he wrote this great essay on populism in the Quarterly Journal of Speech, where he just sort of outline, outlines its stylistic characteristics as, you know, you, you know, cheer on a virtuous people, you construct that people in opposition to a nefarious system, you argue that that nefarious system is populated by the enemies of the people, and you say that there's a kind of apocalypse that will occur that will sort of put the people back into into power and fundamentally i think that stylistic approach remains uh, front and center in my in my work and in the work of a lot of other people and there's little to you know one would would struggle to quibble with it and i think it's a an approach that's being supported by people in other fields you know like political science benjamin moffat's work for example uh you know uh cosmo day i think in his work also sort of signals signals an affinity to that but there's a third component, which is this sort of way of thinking about populism as a political logic, which owes its its history to work in political theory and rhetoric that think about the work of language as the work of subject constitution. Mm -hmm. And then, therefore, wants to be able to make an argument to say, well, we can talk about left populism, right populism, <clears throat> conservative populism, liberal populism. Uh, and we can say that all of those things exist because they are all could be they could all be ways of constructing a population through language even if they don't terminate in the same kind of politics um you know so i suppose you know ernesto leclos is most right prominent in the school of thought um although as as you all sort of alluded to i mean the book takes some issue with this and other others have taken issue with that theory as well um for how it sometimes slips into an almost you know kind of postmodern well if, if anybody can do a populism, then what is the utility of the term? Um, and, and so the book basically says, I can't define every populism, you know, but what I can say is that 
we can speak about conservative populism in the United States as a theory which more or less evidences stylistically the kinds of traits that in like, say, Lee and Moffat's work, we would expect to occur from populists. But nevertheless, it also puts in evidence a kind of poverty of imagination or a kind of poverty of uh, ability to think otherwise about how the people might be defined. So that if you wanted to find conservative <clears throat> populism in the United States, the critique of it comes from its inability to imagine more than a very, very narrow definition of who the people are, right? Whereas it's kind of liberal and or progressive variants are more invested in thinking about the people as something that could be otherwise, right? It has been otherwise. You know, I, I was thinking of Lisa Corrigan's recent, a lot of her recent work on black power. And I, I teach a class of the Cold War every semester or every other semester, you know, and and the black, it's, it's remarkable the extent <clears> to which the black power movement in the United States is invested in saying power to the people, right? And that they're, kind of placing the onus or placing the burden on the critic who then looks at that and says, oh, well, they only care about themselves. It's like, well, they're the ones saying the people. And, and you know, sometimes it's the critics that are actually making a kind of problematic inductive point of reasoning from the positionality of the speaker, you know, uh, to then not understand what the people is doing there from a rhetorical standpoint. So I think it's really about poverty of imagination, right? And like conservative populism, you can say has these features, doesn't always erupt in calls for apocalypse either, right? Like Ronald Reagan was basically understood by a lot of Americans as a pretty chill dude. Um, <laughs> even if he may in fact be something of a world historical figure of, of rather sinister uh, consequence. Reagan, chill dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that actually, that's a great segue because uh, we wanted to ask you about Reagan next. You have um, two chapters in your book that deal with the sort of world historical significance of Reagan as a red or um, one, uh, you know, one dealing with Reagan's uh, role in, in um, introducing Barry Goldwater. Right. And, and another with, with his own presidential rhetoric. Um, and so I guess, you know, thinking through this idea of conservative populism as basically defining a people, defining an essential American subject and, uh, you know, reframing any potential changes to that subjectivity as threats, as, you know, as victimizing um, apocalyptic threats, you know, to the world and to their own sense of identity. Um, how did Reagan, you know, in, in these pivotal moments that you deal with in your book, help establish that rhetoric of conservative populism? You know, so these are two, right? One chapter deals with 64, as you say, the other deals with 84. Um, and, you know, the speech in 64 has been discussed a great deal. You know, it's pretty, I mean, widely praised as one of the most significant, you know, uh, moments of conservative oratory in the United States. And, and essentially, I sort of wrote the chapter about it because I agree, you know, that it, if you wanted to look at a real mission statement for American conservatism in this last, you know, 50 or 60 years, like that's it. Whereas, you know, the 84 campaign, it was such a it was such a crush of a campaign. You know, they just destroyed the Democrats so utterly. It's really less an object of interest. So I think I sort of wanted to divide a little bit between the two chapters and say, like, what are the different moments that are being addressed? And I would say with 64, for me, the most interesting takeaway from that chapter is, you know, there was supposedly this philosophical uh, division that was happening in the nascent conservative movement. And you have these libertarians who are, pro-individual freedom, hostile to institutions, theoretically. You have traditionalists who are 
love love institutions believe in the the conservation of moral authority and are terrified that too much individual authority would collapse right the social and and or political order there have been so many brilliant and thoughtful intellectual histories of conservatism that have been written which have treated those divisions uh as philosophically given constraints you know so George Nash, right, Intellectual History of Conservatism, like that line continues to travel far and wide even today. And I think that the 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 savvy of Reagan, it's in two parts, right? One is not, one is just, he was reading, you know, he was reading Reader's Digest's Austrian economic theory, right? You know, he was scared, he was afraid of flying, he's riding all these trains, he's giving these speeches for G, and he's, he's reading Hayek, and he's reading von Mises, he's reading The Road to Serfdom, and he's taking it all very seriously. Uh, and, and so he is not starting from this formulating point of saying, we have these liberals, you know, we have these traditionalists, we have these libertarians and, you know, I don't know if we can ever make them meet, right. Which is the kind of like big question that drives people to talk about fusionism. Instead, Reagan's saying, you know, by the time he gives the speech, a time for choosing, which is this honed speech that he was giving, you know, at every single event that he achieved, you know, uh, that he attended, right, the, the quote-unquote mashed potato circuit, you know, he is saying, he is like, I'm going to perform a reconciliation of these positions without referring to them, right, in the first instance as either a libertarian position or a, um, you know, a traditionalist perspective. Instead, he's going to say, right, what is what does it mean to be the kind of person, what does it mean to be the kind of life that understands the situation and the circumstance that we're in in 1964, right? And he's helped because, you know, Barry Goldwater is a terrible campaigner. Barry Goldwater shows up to, you know, old folks' homes in Florida and he's like, man, you know what's, you know what's definitely as bad as slavery? Social security, <laughs> you know? And then he shows up in the Northeast, right? With all these like, you know, kind of like liberal adjacent people who want to feel good about their racial politics. And he's like, I can't believe what they're doing to our friends in the South, you know? bringing in that federal government. <laughs> Reagan's like, this is, this is a disaster. Like you can't talk about race like this uh, and expect to get away with it, to build a new coalition. You also can't just talk trash about the government openly when so many people, when it's done so many good things for people, after, especially during and after the second world war. Um, because fundamentally the story of the United States from 1947 to 1973 is of world historical economic prosperity. That did not produce equality, but that produced something like upward mobility on a scale that has not been matched before or since in this country, and indeed in many other countries, um, even if, of course, it was still fundamentally very inegalitarian. So Reagan's got to say, well, things feel very good, you know, but they could one day feel very bad. And... And also Reagan is a committed capitalist. So one of the causes of this great malaise, you know, is the kind of creeping hyper consumerism that was characteristic of the post post-war period in the United States, a materialism that was adopted by government, big labor and big business under the theory that to win the war against the Soviet Union, short of firing atomic weapons, which would mean no one wins because everyone would die. We needed to demonstrate to them that we had a superior way of living. And that that would be communicated via consumerism, you know, nice toasters, good cars, solid middle class jobs. So Reagan's Reagan's got to say, yeah, we are kind of feeling a little iffier these days. 
And he's also got to be able to say that without going, you know, because of black people, right? Because women participate more in the workforce now, because there's this kind of like mm, bubbling, not quite at the surface, sexual revolution that makes people feel uncomfortable, but also excited. So he then in the earlier phase of his career is really pushing heavily on this figure of the state. And he's saying that the state is the thing that can stand in for all of these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that logically, of course, you wouldn't have all this Cold War affluence without the state, that doesn't matter to him. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't right. need to matter to him because his audience are positioned to at the same time feel aggrieved or potentially threatened like something in the country has changed. But also they don't want to take that next step and then ask the bigger question about how the state and the Cold War situation actually enabled their own material comfort. You know, so that's the kind of line between Reagan of 64 and Reagan of 84 is offering, especially but not exclusively, right, middle class or upper middle class or well-off white Americans, a kind of rhetorical vernacular for allowing to think about themselves as the people around whom the country ought to be built, but also to think about themselves as, um, you know, as if they sort of came into this way of being natural. Um, so that even if by 84 he's traded in the small businessman who's going to be enslaved by the government for these like bucolic, you know, uh, Wall Street, uh, not Wall Street, but Madison Avenue manufactured scenes of suburban life. What's common in either case is, you know, this kind of like white right to exist, um, which is never stated as such explicitly. Right. And the kind of like way that a Goldwater or a George Wallace or, um, you know, some of those other kind of, quote unquote, like far radical or right wing conservatives would have stated it. Instead, he's like leaving it up to the audience to say, yeah, it's 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 race is present, but we're not going to name it. Mm-hmm. And and the not naming of it is is to some degree, I think the thing that's his genius is for him to say, well, yeah, this big capitalist transformation of the country is happening. Let's chalk that up to race, <laughs> you know, without ever really quite putting it in the way that you might find it, uh, you know, put in the pages of Jacobin or something like that, right? I mean, in the way that the left would want to say, like, let's have a conversation about how race is used to misdirect from class antagonism or class relationships. So sorry, that was a bit of a long ramble there, but. No, that was, that was fantastic. I just, one tiny follow-up. Is it true that Reagan's sort of rhetorical revolution was part of what led in mainstream political discourse in America that we talk about taxpayers so much. Did that come out of Reagan's rhetoric in that era or does that come earlier? No, it's a, it's a huge part of Reagan, especially like it's a huge part of Reagan's legacy as governor of California, actually. Mm. Right. So it's really like sort of, sort of during the end of uh, Reagan's reign as the governor of California. And then when Reagan is jockeying to run for president that you see the kind of tax revolt happening in California in the mid to late 1970s. So Mm. he talks about businessmen and taxpayers in a time for choosing to some extent. Um, although I think the figure of the businessman sort of bears more weight than the figure of the taxpayer, but absolutely he is setting the stage in the way that he then governs mm-hmm. California and talks about taxes and talks about balancing the budget of California as a kind of, and he uses taxpayer rights as a kind of vocabulary for doing that when he's governor, which then I think gives rise to this, this, the taxpayers revolt model, um, you know, that folks like Melinda Cooper have written uh, very eloquently about um, mm. that then, yeah, makes its way into the stage basically as this kind of figure for both centrist liberals and conservatives to gather around as the quote unquote real American. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I really like the momentum of some of the middle chapters in the book because I feel like, like moving from Reagan to the third chapter of your book, uh, you discuss how the angry white male identity was marshaled by uh, powerful and wealthy media and political figures to garner political victory. So the 1994 midterms. Um, And you also say that the shift from capitalism to neoliberalism as a creep of multicultural gendered otherness uh, was also sort of framed in there. Um, So we wanted to sort of know why this was such an important moment for American conservative politics and the ways in which we might see its echoes and consequences today. Yeah, I think so. You know, the early 90s are uh, you know, a, a very tempestuous time in the United States. And this is partly because the, the Cold War structure held in place some things, you know. And so even if there was this kind of new right revolt that was happening in the country, even if the, you know, the religious right was was in the moral majority were sort of starting to win the culture war, and even if the sort of supply side revolution was starting to take hold, uh, you know, on, on the heels of Reagan, right? I mean, in fact, famously, right, Reagan and his staffers had to like sort of talk other Republicans into the supply side revolution because they were all talking to their, you know, quote, reality based economists who were like, this isn't going to work. Um, but but the, the extent that all of that could really take hold was held in place or restrained by the Cold War. You know, because there were certain imperatives for fighting that, even if you weren't at the high burn of the 50s and early 60s, that, you know, meant that if there was a political realignment happening, it wouldn't be locked in place until the Cold War ended. The Cold War ends and that explodes not just the kind of calculation about domestic politics uh, in terms of why we need to have these big government programs, you know, we're no longer in competition with the world historical enemy, but it also takes the need to generate domestic scapegoats from significant, right? You know, Reagan's figure of the welfare queen, you know, is, is, circulates long before uh, the Cold War ends. But nevertheless, that that kind of figure then has to take on even more of a load-bearing role in the construction of a racial capitalist republic. Uh, and so the United States itself, right, I think this is a, one of the hallmarks of conservatism is it it doesn't just take things that are crises for conservatism and then spin them into gold. It takes crises for the whole country, you know, and converts them into that. So that at the, the precipice of a new nineties, where all of a sudden the nation isn't involved in the twilight struggle anymore and is confronting the, you know, deep, deep, deepening, right. Neoliberal common sense, uh, the rise of globalization looking around and sort of saying, so what are we exactly? Like we knew what we were for when we were fighting against the Soviet Union. Uh, oh, and, and also during that period of time, we'd, uh, we'd bracketed this whole, uh, you know, unsublimatedly toxic racist thing. Uh, but now that that's over, whoa, like what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? And so I think that the, the year of the angry white man, you know, being a sort of talking point about the 94 midterm, movies like Falling Down, um, uh, the the Rodney King the Rodney King beating and then the subsequent acquittal of the you know police that did it by an, uh, uh, the Simi Valley jury, you know those things are kind of formulating this new primal scene for post war post Cold War America and that that primal scene is 
you know, uh, hyper-mediated spectacles of anti-Black violence, uh, a sense that who we are as a country is continuing to be defined by commercial activity, but without a sense that there's more to back that commercial activity uh, because the sort of external other who took on that role, you know, can't can't do it anymore. So it's yeah. it's an existential. Uh, you know, I hesitate to use the word crisis because I think the word crisis is actually you know used to great extent by right wing forces in order to position themselves to kind of own the mantle of this. But I think for sure it's right to say that there's an opening for a new political conjuncture or something like that. And the the name that the right has for that is trauma being done to the body politic with the body politic figured as you know white and male uh, and then you know utilizing to great effect that simple thesis about um, you know who the real American is as a kind of like er figure of this trauma and then deploying that figure in all sorts of different contexts so that you know whatever we know that you know of course right globalization uh, has costs those costs are not just visited upon white men right? But when the cost of globalization can only be thought in terms of an attack on, you know, the the virile nation, uh, then then that's a that that's not just a problem of representation, but a problem for how our political grammars are being, uh, you know, put together more generally. When a news story like you know uh, Claire King writes very well about this in her work on um, male victimhood, when a story like John Bobbitt, right, and Lorena Bobbitt and his castration. Uh, by her and the subsequent history of abuse that is sort of glossed over in the news coverage is like a huge long running news story in the United States in the 1990s. One has to ask, like, what are the what is that saying about what counts as news? You know, um, and and are the the imaginative capacities that we have available to talk about what an injury means. Right. If national injury equates to castration. Well, <laughs> there are lots of other potential models available for talking about what it means to be hurt. Uh, but but few of those are are available, and uh, and and of course you know the Democrats are happy to pile on with welfare reform and and in the wave of triangulation, because they've been so convinced by Ronald Reagan that there's no alternative, you know, to just kind of letting the commerce do its work, and if commerce happens to not benefit black people, well, I mean you know the market is is just kind of passing judgment, and no no single human actor should possibly uh, act so egotistically and with such hubris uh, to then pass pass a judgment that goes against that that the market is passing on. Never mind, of course, that the government's involvement in welfare reform means that the market's not at all, quote unquote, free, but in fact is, you know, being perverted and, and, and manipulated, uh, you know, through sovereign acts of governance. So it's it's a it's a messy, uh, grim moment. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's take that messy, grim moment. Uh, especially the commerce thread and the angry white male thread and move forward about a decade to the 2008 financial crisis that you talk about in chapter four. Um, and you met, you use Rick Santelli as uh, sort of the driving thread through all of this as a symbol of uh, someone who has claimed this average white male American victimhood, despite being part of the finance capitalist forces that sort of, uh, created this crisis. Uh, and there's one line I really liked. Um, Santelli stood in for the people as a particularity, insisting on its universality against legislation that would benefit the average American. 
Despite being very privileged, Santelli claimed the mantle of the common man and fashioned an argument about constitutive exclusion, positing that he was an authentic American and that people like him uh, have been excluded from the political system by the irresponsible acts of the Obama administration. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about how this um, played out in the backdrop of the Obama administration and the sort of body politic of the angry white male as it entered the 21st century, and especially as it's uh, continuing into the 2020s. Yeah, I mean, the, the for me, the Santelli rant was a real catalyzing moment, you know, because what he was saying was so obviously illogical you know and, and i don't say that because i think that the world just runs on logic but you know to me in my particular moment i was like this is exactly the kind of guy who put us in this situation and he is claiming the mantle of the victim um but then you know you see how it got picked up by national review you see how it got picked up by um you know a weekly standard you saw it got picked up by the tea parties you see even outlets like npr right thinking about santelli as the real american um, and asking questions of the Obama administration, like, well, what are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do about the fact that you know this this mortgage plan rewards losers and not winners? And and things start to come together a little more and cohere a little bit more. And um, and I should also say, you know, when talking about the Tea Party, I think Khadijah White's The Branding of Right Wing Activism is like a must read book um, because when I had started writing this chapter, I was worried that I was going to have to do all this work to first, you know, look at media coverage of the Tea Party to sort of prove that it was very um, very equivocal, right? In a way that was problematic. And actually Khadijah's book is amazing on this. You know, it points out that, you know, yeah, it's true that the Tea Party got a lot of coverage, but lots of coverage doesn't equate to negative coverage, right? And in fact, even some negative coverage still equates to value because it builds the brand of the movement. So one part of this is actually just a story about the political economy of the news media, which is overwhelmingly run, right, by well-off white guys, right? Which then has a non-arbitrary uh, correlation in the fact that it is this figure Santilli who is taken to be the quote unquote right authentic voice of the people in this particular moment. And, and I think a lot of this is baked into the DNA, right, of the 80s and the 90s, where you have this this wound culture built on the idea that injured masculinity kind of has this claim over and above other claims to to authority. Um, and, and I'm particular thinking of like Sally Robinson's work in Marked Men. She writes about all of these sort of like 70s and 80s novels and 90s movies that figure these like pained white guys as their heroes. You know, it's uh, John Irving stuff, right? Like The World According to Garp or Stephen King's Misery. Um, and and she's like, she doesn't think they're bad, right? Books necessarily. She's like, they're very good. But the thing about them that uh, lends them their air of artistic gravitas is their ability to convert objectively well-off white guys into uh, into into victims, right? And to say there are these big forces beyond their control that we just can't name, right? Or if we can name them, it's like women and minorities and you know trans people, um, and and so the Santilli situation is very much downstream from that moment in cultural production, right? That wants to say, you know. When we think about the, the the nation and we think about trauma, we think about that in terms of white men, right, and them being hurt. And so the financial crisis visited upon the country is understood as a thing that in particular harmed Americans and Americans are reducible to white men. So Americans are just not a 
they're not a universal category in a statement like, you know, we're the real silent majority, you know, what Santelli says, where he talks about the financial crisis is injuring America. It's just not, it's not Americans. It's white guys, right? And in particular, it's upper class, right? Or, you know, upper middle class white guys that are being thought about as the people who are injured by the crisis, which is, you know, fundamentally inaccurate. But the fundamental inaccuracy uh, doesn't really stop the machine from running because it actually suits lots of people to imagine that national injuries are injuries that are happening to, um, you know, white guys who are finding themselves immaculated or hurt. And if that vocabulary does offer another kind of victim, it's usually like a white woman who is vulnerable, powerless, and in need of protection, um, you know, which is sort of a, a big part of where Trump comes on the scene and, you know, the 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 sublimated uh, fears and threats about slavery and, you know, uh, violence that the Tea Party builds on, too. So it, it is really a common, I think, thread uh, to say, you know, that it's this it's this identity politics of injury that's very consistent throughout. Yeah. And 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 that politics of injury, you know, kind of comes from I mean, they are, especially in the Tea Party era, drawing, I think, very self-consciously on uh, symbolic resources and even tactical re uh, tactical sort of echoes from things like the civil rights movement. I think one of the most baffling things um, and, and just to draw a little bit more on uh, you mentioned Khadijah White earlier about, you know, uh, you mentioned in your book that she talks about the fact that, you know, the mainstream media, when they were reporting on the Tea Party movement, were basically taking their taking their narrative hook, line and sinker that this is a genuinely grassroots populist movement. This is not just an astroturfed, uh, you know, uh, series of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a movement, quote unquote, I, I shouldn't even use that word because you kind of, I think, stray away from using that here. Uh, that's based on the interests of, you know, capitalists of people that are actually in power um and you know but but when we actually see you know some of this populist quote-unquote rhetoric being deployed it's people like glenn beck going to you know the stairs of the lincoln memorial on the anniversary of martin luther king's i have a dream speech uh and you know like basically like trying to appropriate all of this imagery of uh social protests uh of you know civil rights and things like that uh and this is kind of, you know, what I thought was so fascinating about your fifth chapter is that it covers what for me has been one of the most baffling moments of conservative rhetoric, at least in the time that I've been alive, which is, uh, you know, you talk about this, the tactics like Glenn Beck's uh, and others through uh, the lens of racial fungibility. So could you tell us a little bit more about what that means in this context and why is that so significant for uh, the Tea Party moment as we transition from uh, the, the 2000 aughts in into the 2010s. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in a way, like I never would have thought this when I was working on the project in its earliest stages, but, you know, I think the concept of fungibility is maybe the most, one of the most central concepts of the of the project. And, you know, a, a deep debt is owed to, you know, I think Hartman sort of first brings up the term in, um, you know, Scenes of Subjection. Of course, it's also informed by Cheryl Harris's work on whiteness as property, you know, more contemporarily, Eric King Watts's work, I think has been um, astounding on this. Uh, to in, in, in field of rhetoric and thinking about his project on like zombie biopolitics. But, you know, fungibility is just kind of a, right, in economic terms, fungibility means you can exchange a thing for another thing, right? So currency is the most ultimately fungible item uh, that exists because you can exchange it for anything, basically, so long as other people participate in your economy of symbolic exchange in which that currency is valued. 
a tool, right, is of limited fungibility, right? Like, yes, as I uh, tell students about the difference between use value and, uh, you know, exchange value, right? A shovel is useful for like digging a hole or like bashing somebody on the head, but like, you know, or you could use it as a cane, but there's only so many things that you can, you can use it for. Um, so racial fungibility refers to this idea that, right, um, you know, suffering and in particular black suffering is a, uh, within the confines of, you know, liberal imagination in the United States and, and much of modernity, right, kind of the universal currency for what it means to be a person is that if you as a person can identify yourself against a scene of suffering, a scene of subjection, as Hartman would say, and establish your, yourself in relationship to that suffering as an observer, right, or as a participant, right, in the production of the, the scene of cruelty, then you have established your humanity, right? But not in positive terms, to go back to the earlier conversation about negativity. You've established it in negative terms, whereby you say that, you know, I am a person because this other person is not a person. Um, you know, and, and you know, Horton Spiller's uh, sort of germinal work on this, the 1980s, uh, you know, um, Mama's Daddy's Papa's Babies, American Grammar, you know, she sort of read, does a reading of this dynamic in the context of, uh, you know, chattel slavery and makes two points, right? One, the sort of, uh, the fact that the bodies of the enslaved people that are being shipped are being measured as cargo, right? That that's kind of a, that's a sign of what all of modernity wants to do, right? It wants to transform humanity into cargo and to reduce it to, to measurable things. And, right, humanity is not measurable in that way. Not because we know what humanity really is, but just because we should adopt a definition and understanding of what it means to be human or of what humanity could be that resists ideas of instrumental measurement, right? Which is to a great degree why I think there's a lot of you know, points of complementarity and agreement between various versions of Marxist critical theory and these theories of racial fungibility, because they are, they each share this idea that, you know, there should not be an end to the human, right? Defined and certainly should not be defined through, right, either commerce or industrial modernity or the convergence of two in the case of the United States. So, you know, with that as the setup, then what the Tea Party does is, is relatively simple. You know, they talk about Obama as a tyrant, as a despot, as a dictator. They talk about Obamacare as slavery. Um, they talk about the, uh, the Affordable Care Act as a kind of uh, concealed threat of sexual violation at the hand of a kind of racialized Uncle Sam. So their argument is across almost every circumstance, almost every case, right? In argumentation studies, we expect there to be this kind of like, you know, topoi and sphere dependence, right? You expect different topics to have different kinds of arguments. You expect, you know, private sphere and public sphere arguments to be different. That all collapses, right? In the face of instead an argument, which is all of this is making you unfree. And what does it mean to be unfree? It means to be a slave, right? And it's, it means to be a slave. It means to be in chains. It means that you, you know, will be the subject of violation, right? It's all very sexualized too. It means to be feminized and therefore victim. And, and so the, the Tea Party's grammar is, you know, very, very sort of basic argument that expresses the essential thesis of fungibility, right? Which is the government, by dint of an anodyne healthcare regulation that's actually kind of centrist, <laughs> too centrist probably, you know, wants to turn you into cargo. So I think that, you know, the chapter really says, like, we should take them very seriously. You know, the, these conservative arguments that are like, you know, Obama wants to enslave you. Um, you know, my colleague Cal Matheson's written about this in the context of Operation Jade Helm and the freakout that happened there, yeah. right? Obama and racial anxiety. Like, yeah, like many people believe this, 
You know, they or they or if they don't believe it, they at least struggle to think of freedom in anything other than terms of either being enslaved or not enslaved. Um, you know, without having the positive recourse to saying what would it what would it mean to think about personhood in relationship to something other than the condition of slavery? <laughs> uh, and 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 as a consequence, you know, the Tea Party is, it, yeah. They did surveys, you know, Scotch Paul and Williamson do surveys. They say, well, they like these government programs and they don't like these other government programs. And some of them aren't that religious. And it's like, that's all true as far as it goes. But this kind of nihilistic core that's there is more important for mapping the future trajectory of the conservative movement than the particular responses about X, Y, or Z government program or gay marriage or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and as you turn in the final chapters of the book to, uh, you know, contemporary conservative rhetoric, looking specifically at Trump as a political figure, uh, you really hone in on that that nihilism. And something that jumped out at me in the in your analysis of Trump was the the way in which this theory of traumatized personhood that you talk about Trump is developing is not only raced but gendered. That that Trump was very much constructing a kind of feminized political establishment that he was, uh, you know, critiquing and. Uh, portraying himself as having the ability to totally overwhelm and dominate. Uh, and so how does gender f- factor into your analysis of Trump and and just more generally where you see conservative populism today? Yeah, I think um, it, it, gender is extraordinarily central, right? And, and, and gender is not, it's not downstream of race per se, but it is impossible to think about the two outside of one another. Um, you know, because as Spiller suggests in, in her 1987 essay about this question, you know, when liberal modernity was being built through processes of colonization and chattel slavery, the idea of what it meant to be to be an object to not have any agency was co-producing, right? Both this idea of what would eventually become the white subject and also helping to produce the modern gender binary, right, in its form. And, and so I think it's important to highlight that these are right interactive with one another. And one reason that I re- really you know, appreciate the scholars who think about blackness as this kind of move of pathological reduction attempted, um, but also think about blackness as, as the name for the thing that means those attempts fail is precisely because it affords this um, kind of thinking about indeterminacy is the wrong word. It's like a little too Hayekian, I think, but you know, uh, thinking about blackness as a kind of a reservoir for rhetorical invention so that life might be otherwise. So that instead of opposing right race and gender, you're able to say, well, we've conducted a historical map, right? To say this is how race and gender are co-implicated in one another as modernity is being constructed. And therefore, in the context of Trump, you know, one has to understand that when he talks about, you know, for example, Mexican rapists coming over the border, you know, that is an idea of the nation as about to be the victim of gender violence. That is implicated in the historical fear and threat of the right archetypical right black male rapist, but is also by dint of his rhetoric being ported over to think about other populations. And we can understand that as an extension of a regime of anti-blackness, even if it also right demonstrates the way that race is a malleable social construct that can move around to fit the needs of whiteness and, and or white supremacy. So in terms of gender, I think the, you know, I think the central point that I take from the study of Trump is that, you know, masculinity as as it is um, defined is also a negative category, right? You go to Raymond Connell, right? Messerschmitt, 
these key works in gender studies and they are insistent on defining the masculine as the not right um you know where the there's a book i think called the you know um <clears throat> by mike DiPiero. it's a duke press book that sort of talks about the white man white men aren't right this negative this abiding negativity as well uh, and that links up with some of the assumptions that as rhetoricians and rhetorical scholars, we've tended to have about how language work, right? Whether you're thinking about it in structural terms as like, there's the sign and the signifier, right? Or the word that refers to the concept or in post-structural terms, when you were to say, actually, there's no line between the word and the concept. There's the word and then there's the affective charge that you get from hearing the word because it's familiar. And Trump, like the kind of conservative populist before him, has probably unconsciously, right, uh, apprehended that this is a gap, right, or an absent gap that can be exploited. So that you can turn either the gap between signifier and signified, or more likely, the absence of any distinction between word and concept into a sign of trauma, right, into a knot. And, and that knot is then taken as evidence and sign that there was once this body, this coherent, masculine body with clear borders, um, that has somehow been violated, right, injured or penetrated, right? Whether it's the nation state or his own weird abject corporeal body, right? Um, and that that mandates, necessitates a response of violence, right? Um, because a, you know, something that's otherwise than you, something that's unfamiliar, if that's a sign that things might be otherwise, that they could be otherwise, there might be other people, you might understand what a word means, who can be an American? Actually, maybe that's broad and it's a performatively established repertoire. And so official definitions of citizenship don't capture it very effectively. Like that's all really dangerous and scary, right? For conservative populism, because it needs to monopolize this understanding of who the people are. And so alternative versions of the people, whether they come over the border, they come in the form of a you know feminist activist, they come in the form of a black president, right? Are in fundamentally intolerable to the enterprise of conservative populism. And so they have to be able to chart each of these seemingly different inputs as the same kind of threat to right the nation. Um, and, and that's why you see such a, an obsession with Trump about, you know, abjection and violence and rape and desecration and American carnage, because that is a useful frame for him and for conservatism more generally for reducing almost any kind of input into the social world, into a sign of danger or a sign of threat. It's, you know, Hobbes on steroids, really. I mean, or maybe Hobbes is already on a bunch of steroids, you know, so it's just like <laughs> still Hobbes. Whatever they had in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah no, I, I, I really think that just as you were speaking about, you know, this fear of kind of invasion and, and bodily violation, it made me think about how Trump handled the issue of COVID generally um, and, and specifically how he his performativity when he got it. Um, I think was extremely revealing and, and sort of um, uh, is well theorized by your theory of Trump. Thank you. Uh, so I don't know if you want to say anything about that. It's just a compliment, but, but I, I, I mean, it's sort of the way that he kind of, um, you know, attacked the virus with every cutting edge sort of, you know, uh, drug that was coming out, like in the virus that, that had invaded his own system. Right. He seemed to see it as a, as a threat to himself as that kind of uh, synecdoche for conservatism more generally. 
Well, and I think you can see this in mirrored in media patterns of coverage about COVID more broadly, right? Where they've tended to, you know, they assign more and more agency, either either the right-wing accounts or centrist accounts that have kind of been, uh, you know, influenced by right-wing framing. They talk about lockdowns. They talk about school closures. They talk about teacher unions. They don't talk about COVID itself as a, a trauma right, that has to be navigated with and lived with because it is, right, fundamentally as a pathogen that spreads as it spreads, it presents a fundamental constitutive challenge to how modern life is organized. And if it were to be interrogated and responded to as such, then a worldview would collapse, <laughs> right? I mean, the neoliberal worldview, which says, like, there's nothing to life but living, life is commerce, ergo, right? We, the shark has to kind of keep swimming all the time, otherwise it dies, you know, the pathogen could not, the COVID could not reach the status of an event that could be named otherwise. Instead, it has to be the teachers unions. It has to be the lockdowns themselves that have the agency here. Uh, and, and, and I think Trump's response to COVID is of that as well. You know, a way of saying like his idea of the body politic has no way of thinking beyond the inside or outside. You know, like you're either strong and you're a winner and you're dominant or you're dead and you're weak and you're worthless. Uh, you know, and it's that, that real poverty of imagination that's the legacy of possessive individualism. I think that's still, you see in that from him. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, that is that is for sure. And I mean, I think we 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 want to we want to wrap up here by maybe trying to offer a little bit of a counter to that poverty of imagination. I do I do love that you that you keep using that term not only you know because it's a sort of you know economistic conceptual metaphor here we're dealing we're trading in a lot of uh, neoliberal uh, language as it uh, as it goes on too, but uh, but. When you talk in your conclusion about your sort of recommended adjustments in the way that we think about uh, uh, not just the way that we approach conservatism uh, or approach things like the alt-right, um, but also just think about our our polity in general, uh, you know, who we are, uh, I really wanted to focus in on the final uh, attitudinal recommendation that you make for scholars, activists, news commentators, and any other interested parties uh, to think about the people as a formation defined by excess rather than lack. Uh, so could you talk about what that means and why does that provide such a fundamental counter to the kind of uh, uh, reductive, uh, possessive individualism uh, and the kind of conservative populism that we've been talking about thus far? Yeah, that, I love that question. Um, and, and thanks also for just all the, these great questions and the kind words about the book. It's really, um, really, uh, really, really encouraging to hear. Um, you know, I, so lurking in the background of this book is a lot of thinking about psychoanalysis, right? About, you know, the fundamental argument, like, is, is, is all of civilization a life negating project? Or when people built things together, the things that they built together, right, constructed in a way that they then testify to the fact that these narratives of scarcity and, you know, tooth and claw struggle were um, inaccurate, you know? And like one way to resolve those questions is to like endlessly fight on the internet about them, you know, in the kind of customary uh, manner of the day and to say, well, you know, fundamentally it's about scarcity. No, fundamentally it's about believing otherwise and then making the world as such. Um, and it's kind of like an irresolvable debate, which is why it is a constant source of, of deliberation and antagonism. And I think it's all very, very productive. But I think, you know, the sort of Trumpian conservative vision says 
life is nothing more or less than this tooth, or claw, tooth and claw struggle. And you're either on top or you're on the bottom. And contained within that are right two propositions. One, that one knows what it means to be on the top and one, means, one, mean, one knows what it means to be on the bottom, right? Which would have to be then measurable in a certain kind of instrumental sense. Um, and two, the kind of shift from, you know, liberalism to neoliberalism, or if you just want to say, right, one mode of capitalism whose inhumanity was less visible than another mode of capitalism whose inhumanity is um, increasingly visible <laughs> or self-evident, right? Mm -hmm. That that's, that's a regime that wants to say, you know, the thing that's true about the world is the circulation and existence of capital and everything else has to be constructed in the shadow of that truth. Right. And the truth of the market cannot be argued with or bargained with or governed against. It just kind of is. And both the sort of Trumpian view and the kind of gloss of neoliberalism there say, like, we only expect that there's going to be the production of more death, more immiseration and more more destruction. And those work to have a kind of fatalist. They, can, they have a kind of fatalist effect on, you know, people in the media. You can see it when they basically give the Republicans a free pass for a broken democracy and they're like, well, you know, it is what it is. Like the Democrats have once again lost as opposed to, well, the Republicans have some agency in this matter. And so like we should talk about that. Um, and also to the way that the, the presence of uh, suffering is both pathology that indicts a certain kind of life, but is also omnipresent, <laughs> right? Rather than, than it's something that could be sort of done away with or eliminated. So I, I'm a big champion of Bonnie Honig's concept of public things. You know, I think it has to be, so she makes this argument in an essay about the uh, Lars von Trier film, the one with the asteroid. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Melancholia. Melancholia. Melancholia, yes. Yeah, and, and about how, you know, in the wake of some looming catastrophe, one has the opportunity to adopt a relationship with other people. And the things that come out of that relationship with other people and the things you build with other people, um, you know, can't necessarily the outcome of that can't be predicted from the circumstances at hand, right? Period. Um, and I think she's kind of gone back and said, she wouldn't necessarily want to call these public things because public has this historical baggage in the United States where we tend to confuse public with super egalitarian, freely available. No, 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 that's not, that dog don't hunt. But, right, something <laughs> like you have these objects in common that people build together, and maybe this is kind of what networks of solidarity and mutual aid are doing, right? They're building relationships between people that, can't necessarily serve as representational fictions that then allow people to kind of slough off their obligations to one another. They, in fact, are kinds of obligations to one another that we build, uh, and, and they're they're founded in relationships of mutual accountability. So from in terms of a scholarly attitude, I mean, I have been trying to remind myself, and I hope that other people are sort of looking at things and saying, what could this thing become, Right. And like, what are the characteristics of the, this this particular event or policy proposal or local activist meeting that I'm attending or local art project that I'm a part of? Um, and saying like, I understand all the way that those things could go sideways because of who we are and where this country's been and all that. But then also like, what would it mean to have faith in one another to conduct and participate in this project while understanding that we're not going to agree with each other the whole time or maybe even all most of the time? But then nevertheless, there's some importance in, in kind of doing those things together. That's for scholars. I mean, the, the mainstream media, like I, they just need to like get a sense of justice, which they won't have because it doesn't make money for them. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just violated my own axiom there. But I think, you know, when it comes to like large scale political economy, pessimism is warranted. 
that's fair that's totally especially when we're talking about the media for sure but no i really i i really appreciate that point about um about participating in things you know because i think that's something actionable that anyone listening to this podcast can think about is like you know entering into a space where you can actually practice a different type of subjectivity uh that you know that while we are still living under neoliberal capitalism, you can sort of experiment with what would it be like to actually uh, participate in an environment where you have that sense of mutual accountability, where you have that, you know, that feeling of uh, of building towards something larger than yourself. Um, I think that that can be a really powerful, powerful gesture. Absolutely. And I think pessimism is warranted. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, pessimism is warranted, and yeah, yeah but it, but it's nice to uh, to think about both how you know as political actors and as scholars we can try to expand rather than contracting. So, like, I mean, I, I think a little bit about some of the debates that we've had on this show while we've been grappling with the meaning of January sixth. Um, you know that often there are very unproductive conversations about the January 6th attacks. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can learn from it, you know, as, as long as we think it through in context, right. And think through, um, the meaning of different kinds of political actions in response to it. Right. And so, uh, this idea that let's try to expand productively rather than, um, boxing things up and fragmenting things in the way that neoliberal political economy tends to do. Right. Um, so yeah, Paul, any, any last thoughts or anything that you want to plug for us on the show? Um, I thank you so much for, for all of this. I, the one thing I would say is, you know, I hope, I hope people that are sort of trying to get involved in these conversations, the field or whatever, when they're sort of starting to think about these questions of, of race and violence, you know, I hope they, you know, start with the Stia Hartman and the Horton Spillers and, you know, uh, exciting young scholar named Amber Kelsey, who's written some work in philosophy and rhetoric, uh, Shanira Reed Brinkley, who is publishing some really interesting work on this, you know, Ursula or uh, Eric King Watts, like, uh, you know, Lisa Corgan, Anjali Watts. I hope people kind of start with that work, you know, to get into this question. And, you know, if they come to the book and they sort of like, I don't want people being out there being like, Oh, this guy's talking about all this anti-black stuff and rhetoric for the first time ever. Cause like, I'm not, you know, I had to spend many years thinking about this and working with a lot of these people who are, you know, valued colleagues and everything uh, to get to the point, to be able to, you know, like have a conversation about a book that tries to, in some sense, participate in this kind of discussion. So, you know, I, I hope people kind of start their reading from, from that perspective. Um, and, and this is, this is been a great conversation and I, I loved you all's last, uh, January 6th, uh, insurrection episode. So if folks haven't listened, uh, I think really, uh, people should do that. I thought the, the reading and discussion about the Tucker Carlson, uh, special, special set of episodes was really, really amazing. Um, he's a terrifying person. <laughs> thank you so much yeah. thank you thank you paul that means so much <laughs> to hear you say that and uh and just for for our readers uh or for our listeners uh if you don't know we we cite all of our sources uh we try to do a judicious uh sourcing practice on this so i've been i've been taking notes on uh the names uh that uh, and i know that calvin has two of uh the people that uh that paul has been referencing all throughout the conversation uh so if you haven't done so yet check out our show notes because we're dropping links to all these people's work in here uh so that you can go find uh find them uh and uh, and get uh, uh get into this conversation from their perspective as well uh so 
I think we just want to conclude it by saying, you know, once again, Paul Elliott Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, your book, uh, once again, comes out on January 25th. By the time we release this episode, that will probably uh, be in the past. Uh, but it's from University of Alabama Press. Uh, and uh, yeah, highly recommend that everybody go and read it. It's a it's a really, really fantastic book that brought a lot of clarity, I think, to my, uh, my understanding of uh, the American political system and uh, the right wing. So thank you once again. Uh, and from all of us at Reverb, take care everybody bye bye i'm not gonna say bye our show today was produced by calvin pollock alex helberg and mike laudenbach with editing work by calvin and mike you can subscribe to reverb and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher android or wherever you listen to podcasts check out our website at www.reverbcast.com you can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 